You're listening to America's Web Radio, your voice in the matter. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to David Deardorff, um, who is the, one of the co-authors with Catherine Wadsworth of What's Wrong With My Fruit Garden and also, also What's Wrong With My Vegetable Garden. Today we're going to be talking about some common problems and what you can do to avoid them. And um, David, I understand that you are very active in the Master Gardener program, teaching Master Gardeners. Yes, I was uh, uh, on the faculty of Washington State University, and um, I started teaching the Master Gardener program when I was faculty advisor to uh, Master Gardeners uh, here in Jefferson County, and that that was years ago. And uh, but we we still teach uh, modules of the Master Gardener training program every spring, uh, especially in uh, the the big counties, uh, Seattle, the King County, and then Tacoma in Pierce County. But we also work in Skagit County, and we do um, advanced training too in diagnosis for uh, Master Gardeners because uh, so many Master Gardeners are. Are fearful of uh, vol- you know putting in their volunteer time in plant clinic, so uh, and plant clinic is so much fun. Um, we just really enjoy it, and so anyway, that's what we uh, do with them these days. We do a lot of teaching, and but then I wanted to mention also our first book, "What's Wrong with My Plant." Um, Catherine and I wrote that specifically because of the difficulty. We had and uh, master gardeners have in plant clinic when somebody brings in a specimen, they want to know what's wrong with their plant, but you can't figure out the name of the plant. So, so we wrote a book where you don't need to know the name of the plant to figure <laughs> out what's wrong. Well, it, it, and one of the little secrets when we were doing plant clinic was we would always ask um, the homeowner what the plant was because that gives you a diagnosis um, fairly quickly. Like, well, you know, if you've got an elm leaf beetle or something. And, of course, some things that you see um, are obvious as soon as they walk in the door, aren't they? Like azalea lace bugs. Is that a problem in your neck of the woods? Oh, yes. Uh, on, um, you know, rhododendrons are so common here in the Northwest. That, and, yes, lace bugs are, are on them uh, regularly. Is there any good organic cure for that? I know it's not a vegetable topic, but it's one of the questions that I get asked a lot. And, of course, 10 years ago when, when systemics came to be used, that was pretty much standard recommendation to apply it early in the season. But now with all the problems with um, the systemic insecticides and the pollinators, nobody wants to use them again, of course. Right, that's right. Well, uh, insecticidal soap works, um, but of course you have to apply it regularly. It, it's not a you know one shot deal. Uh, and you need to do it early before um, before the bugs get ahead of you too. Yeah, yeah, you kind of do. And and what, what a lot of people don't know about. I mean, soap works really well for, for any insect, but you have to get the insect wet with it. You know, you have to see the bug and then and squirt it and so that it gets wet with the soap. That's what kills it. Once the soap is dry, it's not effective. 
And, of course, since they mostly hang out on the underneath side of the leaf, you have to be a contortionist or use a special nozzle on your sprayer to get up under there. Oh, that's so right. (laughs) Now, you are strictly an organic gardener now, and when you were here last, you told us why that is so, but I think a lot of people haven't heard that segment, so why don't you tell us? Oh, gosh, well... um uh, back back in the uh, long, long time ago when I was young and, and foolish, um, I was a backyard rose breeder. I had uh, oh, about 250 hybrid tea roses that I was growing in my backyard. And uh, roses need a lot of, of uh, spraying, or at least I thought they did. So uh, I was out spraying them with... Uh, um, Actually, I was using isotox, and um, but I was only wearing cutoffs. I had nothing else on. I mean, I had bare skin uh, all over, no gloves, no goggles, no respirator, uh, and the wind was blowing, and I so I got the spray drift blown black onto my skin, and um, and I poisoned myself rather badly. Um, so. Uh, so I've avoided those kinds of of uh, chemicals um, ever since. And then um, I started a uh, uh, native plant nursery in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, called Plants of the Southwest. Um, oh, that was a long time ago too. That was in '77. And our my partner at the time, uh, Gail Haggard, and I uh, decided. Uh, at the beginning, to make our whole nursery completely organic, so uh, it was uh, it was then and is still uh, an organic uh, nursery. So we think it's important. It's important for you personally, for the gardener personally, because a lot of people just don't know. Um, for example, I know so many. I when we lived in Hawaii, we lived in Hawaii for eleven years, and we were big orchid growers at the time, orchid judges and growers and breeders, and we knew four different orchid growers that died of liver cancer uh, while we lived in Hawaii. And I could observe them mixing up these um, cocktails of pesticides in a five-gallon bucket and stirring it with their bare hands because... Yeah, because they don't know, uh, and it's, I mean, and you can explain, gosh, you know, don't do that. It's bad for you. But uh, have, having done that for so many years, um, you know, it caught up to them. So, and and yeah. liver cancer is pretty rare, too. It's, it's hard to catch or, or to get unless you're messing around with something toxic, whether too much alcohol or too many chemicals. Now, you mentioned something about when you were spraying the isotox, and for our listeners, if you do elect to use a chemical spray of some variety, please, please read and follow all label directions, wear your eye protection, wear long sleeves, long pants, sturdy shoes, not canvas um, that can absorb the chemicals, or whatever it says on the label, because we two here had a death in Georgia some years back um, with a gentleman, a a very fine nurseryman who was exposed to Paraquat. And Paraquat basically causes you to drown in your own lung fluids. 
And it's just a terrible, terrible death. And people don't realize, you know, they see a lot on the TV commercials of people very happily spraying their lawn, you know, wearing a sundress or wearing a golf shirt and shorts. Um, and they don't think to follow the directions. Yes, you're absolutely right. You, you, you really need to follow the directions. Read the even though it's fine print. Get your magnifying glass and read it and uh, understand it, and then definitely wear your protective gear. And when you're done, take a shower. You know, get your get your hair clean so that you don't have any residue uh, on your person. Uh, it's it's really important. And even even though we are strictly organic, uh, Catherine and I, and all four of our uh, Books. What's wrong with books in the whole series? Stress 100% organic solutions, but even they are not—they're not totally safe. You have to be careful. So um, you have to use your your uh, respirator, and uh, it's just—I can't stress it uh, um, hard enough. Just... Yeah, I, I really—it astonishes me when I see. Uh, people that are out there spraying and they don't ha- haven't taken any precaution because even if you just get something as moderate as insecticidal soap in your eye, it's going to burn like crazy. It sure is, and and if you're spraying, uh, oh, uh, a garden fungicide that that in, in relatively innocuous like uh, sulfur, you know, a sulfur mm-hmm. spray or dust, and you breathe it into your lungs, it's Especially if you have any little bit of asthma, you're going to be in trouble. So you've got to wear your stuff. And you mentioned getting a magnifying glass out, and that's a good tip, but a lot of people don't have magnifying glasses when they're out. But most of our listeners do have um, computers or smartphones, and they can go on the manufacturer's website and read it. And you can enlarge the print that way. Every every uh, every product, all of these uh, uh, chemical remedies have the uh, what's it called the manufacturer's uh, data the, the safety data sheet. Yeah, the, the MSDS. That's yeah. exactly right. What I'm referring to. They're, those are posted online, so you can you can go to the manufacturer and look the thing up and easily read it on your computer screen. You know, people don't realize that organic doesn't necessarily mean non-toxic because they forget that what they're using it for is to kill something, whether it's to kill an insect or to kill a fungus. Um, it's it's a killer. That's correct. So, what, what, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that one of our very common, one one of the older very common pesticides, rotenone, is, I I don't think it's labeled for use in the garden anymore, only as a a fish killer, but that's terribly toxic and can cause nerve damage too, and it's made out of a plant. So just because it's, you know, organic doesn't mean it's safe. Yeah, that's absolutely true. (laughs) And, well, even strychnine, you know, is, uh, comes from a plant, too. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Well, and, yeah. and remember Blackleaf 40, um, oh. the, the nicotine sulfate, 
uh, I used to, when I used to teach my master gardener classes, I would take, bring in an old bottle of it and show them that it had the skull and crossbones on it because they thought that since it was in the organic section that it was safe. Right. That's right. There, there is actually there's one uh, 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 remedy out still used. It's the um, oh, what's it called? Uh, lime sulfur oil and lime sulfur is a is mm-hmm. a spray. It's often used in organic gardening, um, and it is the only one that has a signal word on the label on the front of the of the package that is danger. Not a skull and crossbones, but it's danger. Most of the, all of the ones that are readily available uh, have the signal word caution. Mm-hmm. Um, that are more toxic than that say warning, and then the ones that are the most toxic that homeowners can use uh, has danger on it. So pay attention to that signal word that's on the, it's all right there printed on the front on the label of every single package. Now that we've scared our listeners half to death about it and sending them running, and, and I hope sending them running to their labels to go read them and find out what they've been using, uh, we're going to talk in the next section about, um, about how to avoid using them when you, ha- when you have to. We'll be back right back after this break. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties. Track and record your garden with photos and notes. Share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to David Deerdorf, who is an expert on all things organic growing for your vegetables and fruits. And David, right before the break, we were talking about um, lime sulfur, and that brings me around to growing fruits, because that was one of the old standbys and very heavily used, particularly for stone fruit production um, here in Georgia. Yes, it's, it's, uh, uh, it provides really good control of the, for stone fruits of brown, brown rot and also of uh, peach leaf curl on peaches. Um, uh, we don't, we don't in, in our garden, Catherine and I don't use it anymore. Um, and uh, what we are using is copper, copper 
really good for to control both brown rot and peach leaf curl uh, if you apply it at the right time of year. So, what would your what we, would your recommended spray program be if somebody was growing a peach or a nectarine or a plum? Uh, those the stone fruits you you want to apply uh, the the copper in the in the autumn after leaf fall. Uh, uh, that's the best time. To the, the first application, then uh, second application in the in the uh, springtime when the buds are just uh, beginning to break, and you really need to drench you know drench the tree with it because the the fungus will be living on uh, the dead leaves that have fallen to the ground, but also on the trunk and the branches of the trees. And it produces spores that infect the leaves uh, when the leaves come out, So, um, or, or also infect the fruit in the case of brown rot. Um, those are the, the two best times to use copper to control peach leaf curl. I'm, I'm sure that doesn't... Good job. You actually with brown rot on the fruit, you probably want to apply it uh, uh, a third time when the fruit begins to develop. What they call you, uh, what they call shuck split when the little calyx splits and uh, and the developing fruit emerges. Do you also use a horticulture oil spray in the wintertime or dormant oil of some variety? Yeah, we do, and uh, uh, that's a that's a good thing to bring up because there are so many different things now called horticultural oil or dormant oil. They used to always be made from a petroleum oil, and uh, and since they were they were phytotoxic to the plants' foliage, you could only use them in the winter time when the when the trees had no leaves. That's why they were specifically a dormant oil spray. These days, most of the products I see on the garden shelves are made from vegetable oil and are not nearly as toxic. They're light, lighter oils, and so you can use them during the growing season as well as in the wintertime. And these, these oils are good. What they, what they do is they, uh, they coat. You coat the tree with a thin film of oil, and that also coats insect eggs uh, and kills them. So it also coats insects and kills them. So um, it's a, it, it also uh, helps to control fungus. So, yeah, it's a good product, especially look for ones that are made from a vegetable oil like uh, soybean oil. That's a good thing for our readers to know because I, I think some of, our, some of our listeners probably remember their grandfather spraying and using the dormant oils. And I was just so happy when sun spray came out and I could use it to control some things that I couldn't with the dormant oil. It was yeah. nice to have. Now, do you, you grow apples too, don't you? Oh, yes. We have uh, in our yard, we have a quarter acre here uh, in our, on our home. And we have three apple trees. Uh, we have a Liberty, which does really well here in western Washington because it's uh, resistant to apple scab, which is uh, sort of rampant here. But we have a uh, we have a Liberty, a uh, Honeycrisp, and a Brayburn. They're all three in bloom right now. 
our blooms was, were about just about two weeks ago, and now I've got some little tiny apples out there that if it ever stops raining, I'll start thinning. Do you have to do much fruit thinning in your neck of the woods? Oh, absolutely, yes, um, because the, the apples set uh, what seems like thousands of little tiny apples on there. So, yeah, you have to uh, pick them off, you know, carefully remove them from the tree so that you get uh, just a limited number of apples. You can't expect the, the poor tree to put all that energy into maturing that much fruit um, because, it, you know, the fruit, if it, produce, if it tries to mature too heavy a crop, the, the apples themselves will be small, undersized, um, but also the weight of the developing fruit can break branches off or even split your tree. So, uh, so it's a good idea to thin. Uh, we we thin our apples every every year, and uh, well, we thin our our peaches too. We don't thin the cherries. Uh, and we haven't needed to thin the plums either because the plums, plum fruits are small, and we haven't seen a, a uh, you know, a heavy crop weighing down the tree. I was we, taught uh, that you should you should leave the space of a dollar bill between each fruit. Is that about what you do on yours? Yes, that that or or more is what we do. It's, I, we don't leave on apple trees. Um, of course, you want to protect your, the spurs on the tree, and I only leave one apple on a spur, and I separate the the spurs by oh a good oh maybe eight inches. For our listeners that don't know what a spur is on a tree, tell us about them. Oh, spurs are uh, are specialized uh, short shoots that fruit trees develop. Um, they're really they're they're interesting because they they never grow long. You know, there are there are tr- there are shoots, there are branches on your trees that grow really long every year, um, two or three feet long. Uh, and then there's these little short guys that are only you know two to three inches. Uh, long, and they stay short every year. Each spur can live as long as 11 years and bear flowers and fruit every year. So uh, they're they're really nice, and you want to keep them when you're removing, when you're picking your apples, harvesting your apples in the fall or harvesting your peaches in the summertime. You want to uh, remove the fruit carefully so that you don't pull the spur off the tree the same time that you're getting the fruit. What's your spray schedule for the apple trees? Um, well, I sprayed everything with uh, with my uh, copper solution. Um, when, when the uh, peach buds were showing pink, I sprayed all of the trees then. I haven't sprayed them since um, this, this spring. We will get powdery mildew on our apples, um, so I will treat them with uh, sulfur, uh, and that will be after the leaves emerge. I'll treat them with sulfur for that. I could also or use oil. You can't use oil and sulfur at the same time, Um, and you can't use sulfur if the 
if the temperature is too hot. But sulfur is a good control for fungus diseases, and apple scab and powdery mildew are both um, fungus diseases. Another good spray that I do use for uh, powdery mildew specifically is just simple baking soda. And, that and how much do you use of that? Oh, uh, uh, about a tablespoon of baking soda in a gallon of water works works well. It helps if you add a little bit of uh, liquid soap to that as a spreader sticker. And we use uh, liquid, so we don't use uh, dishwashing liquid because that's a detergent, not a soap. What we there's, but there are liquid Castile pure soaps that you can buy uh, that are inexpensive. Um, the one we always use is Dr. Bronner's, and uh, it, it, it all the grocery stores carry it, and it's uh, it's really a good soap, and it's pretty safe to use on your plants. Does that come in a liquid? I've only seen it in a bar form. Oh yes, it's a liquid. You you can get it as a, a liquid soap um, in in most stores. At least around here, all the stores carry it, and uh, it comes in a liquid bottle with a you know a top uh, applicator top. And uh, peppermint flavor was what we often use. They come in a lot of different. Uh, uh, have a lot. A lot of them have different flavorings added. I wonder why. Oh gosh, because it smells good. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> so, it doesn't turn it into something magical, huh? No, it doesn't turn it into something magical. But but actually, the aromatic oils, uh, like peppermint oil, is a good uh, deterrent for for some insects. Um, they, you know, some pest insects are looking for uh, they're looking for their particular host plant by its odor, by its smell. And if you mask that smell with something like uh, peppermint oil, then the insect can't find your tree. That's a handy thing for people to know. Do you have problems with codling moth in your area? Oh, yeah, codling moth and uh, apple maggots, both. And what do you do for those? Well, a simple thing uh, for, for us to do with our, um, with our apples is after they're thinned and, the, and you've got, you know, the, the apples that you want to mature uh, are left on the tree, uh, it's really helpful to bag each apple in a little, you know, a little brown paper lunch sack. You just put the bag around the apple and staple it at the top. And then, then the, um, then the fruit, developing fruit is protected from the apple maggot fly. She can't, she can't find the fruit if she can't see it or smell it. So she won't be able to lay her eggs on it. Um, and the same is true for the codling moth. They won't be able to get inside the fruit. The moth wants to lay her eggs on the developing fruit, and then the caterpillar, when it hatches out, will burrow its way into the developing apple. So you can prevent that from happening by putting a barrier over the apple fruit. The uh, Japanese actually make these little tiny cloth bags that you put over your apples and pears, um, and those are more expensive than lunch sacks. 
but they're they're kind of neat. Um, there's also um, for apple maggots, they they sell this um, round plastic red uh, ball with a little uh, metal hook on it. You hang this ball in your tree and coat it with goo. And they, the, the fly, the apple maggot fly, uh, hones in on that red round ball, thinking it's an apple. And when she lands on it to lay her eggs, she gets stuck in the in the tangle foot. And uh, so that's a good way to control them also. But um, a little less messy is to just use a glove sack. Okay. We have to take a little break right here, but we'll be back right after this. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to David Deardorff, who, with along with Catherine Wadsworth, has written, what, three or four of the What's Wrong With My Blank books, haven't you? You have What's Wrong With My Plants, What's Wrong With My Vegetable, and What's Wrong With My Fruit Garden. Do you have any others? Oh, we do. The, the fourth one in the series is What's Wrong With My House Plant. And uh, that's going to, our publisher is Timber Press. And they'll bring that book out next year. Is it going to have lots and lots of pictures in it, like uh, What's Wrong With My Fruit Garden does? Yes, there's lots of photos. That's a good thing to know. Now, right before the break, we were talking about some particular pests, and, and we also mentioned some diseases. Um, you, you have apple scab in your area, you said. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, we don't have apple scab quite so much. Um, basically, our apple problems are powdery mildew and little wormy apples. Uh, we we do sometimes get um, what what's the disease? Black heart um, and a couple of others. One of the things that a lot of people don't think about because they're so disgusted when they find that they have diseased fruits um, or, or wormy apples, they just throw them on the ground and leave them. But that's a really bad idea, isn't it? Oh, yes, it's a very bad idea because the, the, uh, the wormy apple, um, you know, once those worms have matured, they're, they're larvae, of uh, insects. In the case of codling moth, the, that larva is a caterpillar, and it will 
uh, mature into a moth. Uh, the little apple maggot actually is a maggot. It will mature into a fly. Uh, both of them, if once they're, they've grown to full size inside your apple, uh, crawl out. They burrow out of the apple and uh, get to the ground. Uh, the apple maggot uh, will pupate in the soil, and then the, the codling moth also will find a place uh, at ground level near the base of the tree or somewhere to make a cocoon uh, so it can pupate inside of its cocoon. I mean, you don't want them to do that. Once, If you have an apple and you know there's uh, these quote-unquote worms inside it, you, you need to get that apple out of your garden, sanitize by removing it, put it in the garbage, uh, send it to the landfill, um, you know, get it get it out. So, because if you interrupt the life cycle by uh, getting rid of those larvae and getting them out of the garden, so don't with diseased material like uh, fungus infected foliage. Uh, there again, you want to get it uh, sanitize your plants by removing the infected material and get it out of the garden because it's. The fungus is going to make spores that drift on the air to infect new foliage. And the more you can do to uh, do what we pathologists call reduce the inoculum load by cutting down on the number of spores in the air um, by sanitizing, get the material out of your garden, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, I, I want... Every now and then, I would have just such a disappointing year that I would, I would just give up on it. Especially when it was August and it was 102 degrees, with you know 89 percent humidity, and I was always, always sorry after that that I didn't. Yes, yes. You, if you just uh, if you abandon the crop to the uh, to the pests, uh, the insect pests, and and the diseases. Um, Yes, it, it will come back to bite you in the in the next year. Yeah, it took several years after that to get my get my yard cleaned up, and it was about at that point when I decided that peaches are just peaches and I are just not ever going to get along because of the brown rot and because of my reluctance to spray. And the apples pretty much take care of themselves. If I if I keep the area cleaned up around them. You know, keep, keeping the fallen fruit done, and occasionally we'll have um, some leaf diseases, and I just pluck the leaves off and then rake really good underneath, and that seems to do a pretty good job at it. But mostly now, I'm growing fruits that are easy to take care of. Uh, blueberries, for example, they're pretty much foolproof for us, We're, with the exception of a couple of years with with the blueberry maggots that have become more popular. Um, and raspberries. Raspberries are not very difficult for us either. Do you have any particularly easy ones in your West Coast garden? Oh, uh, all of the uh, berries are really easy here in the in the maritime Northwest. Uh, we grow uh, red red raspberries, um, strawberries, lots of blueberries, and they're really uh, very trouble-free for us. We have uh, Marionberry. Uh, all of our, our bramble fruits, the blackberries and raspberries, are right now in full leaf, but they haven't started to flower yet. Um, and our strawberries are in bloom, 
Um, so we'll be having strawberries in, in June. They're, they're easy. Uh, we're very much trouble-free, uh, even red currants. We have, uh, uh, we have had no trouble with aphids on our, our red currants last year, and hopefully we won't have them this year. So what, what's a marionberry? Oh, a marionberry is a, it's a blackberry. Um, it, it was developed from a, a native species uh, here on the West Coast, Rubus ursinus, is the trailing blackberry, or sometimes called a dewberry, and um, uh, and it, the wild plants are just delicious. It's a it's a really uh, good plant, and the Marionberry was developed in uh, I think Marion County, Oregon. Um, it's a selection of the wild species, or it's a hybrid of that wild species. Anyway, it's very vigorous blackberry that has long. Uh, trailing almost vine-like stems that can get to be 20 feet long in a single season uh, has to be trained up on a trellis. Um, and it's not, not doesn't grow like a bush at all. It grows more like a vine uh, with these very long trailing stems. And the berries are just, uh, they're, well, they're really delicious. Easy to grow and delicious. Does it tip root like a, a blackberry does? If you were to let the end of it go down to the ground, um, I think it does. Uh, we, uh, I actually tried to. Uh, I, I took some of the long stems last year and pegged them to the ground with pins mm-hmm. and to get them to root, and they did not root for me. But I hmm. suspect if you if you buried the tip, I suspect it would eventually root. Yes. One of the problems that we have with wild blackberries here is that they root into the ground wherever the the tip hits, and they become terrible thickets if you don't keep after them. Oh, we have uh, here in the northwest, we have the Himalayan blackberry. That's exactly what it does. It roots at at the tip, and it just sort of marches across the landscape and eats whole houses in a single bound, you know. It's uh, (laughs) It's a terrible weed, uh, but th- this uh, Marionberry doesn't 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 seem to do that. Do you grow figs in your climate too? We do. Yes, we have a, a, a nice, uh, relatively new little desert king fig tree, um, and it's it's right now has it hasn't even leafed out yet, but it's got a whole bunch of those. That early crop of little tiny green figs developing on it, so we're anxious that uh, that that first crop. We we usually we always get a first crop of figs, but the what they call the main crop of figs that develop in the autumn um, it never matures for us. It gets it's just too cool. Our climate is too cool uh, for that crop to mature. We now, that's interesting because we don't very often get the early crop, the breva crop, but we do get our later crop, and it usually ripens in, oh, I would say maybe August for us. Ah, uh, well, that's that's interesting because, you know, the Northwest is so cool. We, we just don't have a heat load here that's uh, uh, significant. I'm very jealous of your 102 degrees in August. <laughs> 
be lucky if it, if it, if we're lucky if it gets up to seventy. Oh. Uh, so our the reba crop on the fig, yeah, that matures uh, in about June, I think, and it, it's delicious. But the main crop, no, we don't get that. Do they have any pests on them? No, we don't haven't had any pests at all on our figs. But we haven't had pests other than birds. Yeah, we haven't had pests until very recently with the Asian ambrosia beetle. Oh yeah, those are terrible. Do you have those on the west coast now too? Um, you know, I don't want to say no. We don't. I haven't seen them, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, all of these uh, invasive critters that uh, that come in from around the world um, eventually show up in most places in the country. There's there's some restrictions, you know, like the the Japanese beetle um, isn't isn't common at all uh, west of the Mississippi River. But it's very common back in the east and has been for decades. Yes, it. It's been pretty terrible on the East Coast. It's not so bad; it's not as bad here in Georgia as it was uh, 30 years ago in New Jersey. But I know that some people have terrible problems with them. Mostly the people that have lots of lawn, because I understand that Japanese beetles prefer to like lay their eggs in well irrigated, sunny south slopes in turf. Yes, that's right. The the beetle larvae, the grubs, develop in the soil. Um, and when that reminds me of something, you know, we were talking about apple maggots and codling moths a little while ago. Um, mm-hmm. a, a good uh, organic remedy for uh, these insects that spend a part of their life cycle in the ground or on the ground is uh, is a critter called beneficial nematodes. You can actually buy them at your local garden center. And you mix it with water and spray it on the on the soil. It's a uh, it's the nematodes are microscopic roundworms. They're very very tiny, and these beneficial ones um, are obligate parasites of insects uh, that that are in the ground. So you can use them, like for example, apple maggots that have to spend they have to pupate in the soil, or Japanese beetles that that uh, where the larvae live in the soil. Use the um, beneficial nematodes, and they will. They have a wide host range. They they attack and kill about two hundred different species of insects in the soil. So they're really that's a, good. That's a good thing for people to know that are really in infested areas. I've used beneficial nematodes um, to control some uh, uh, flies in my manure piles because I keep chickens, and in a really wet year, they can get pretty fierce, and that seems to help a lot. And I'll post on our Facebook page, I'll post some online sources too, because a lot of times, uh, most, a lot of people don't live near garden centers anymore, and sometimes they just have a big box store that doesn't have uh, quite as much as they might need. So we'll talk about that, and I will post that information for you, and we'll be back right after this. Quick stakes. That's 
Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This week I'm talking to David Deerdorf, who's a plant pathologist and an author of several books on what's wrong with my plants. So if you have a problem with any kind of plant, you can find one of his books. And we've been mostly talking about fruit today. But let's change tact for a little bit for this last segment. Let's talk about vegetables and what diseases that you find are most common in vegetables. Oh, well, of course, uh, um, uh, squash, uh, all the summer squash, all of the winter squash varieties uh, that people grow and love are, are always susceptible to powdery mildew. Um, and we, I, I assume it's common in your area, too, because it's, it's really common in our area. Um, what we try to do is look for uh, cultivars of zucchini, for example, that are resistant, genetically resistant to powdery mildew, because they they can be uh, completely free of the disease. We have such a long season here that even the disease-resistant ones um, will eventually succumb if I don't do anything about it. But even here, uh, it gives you a good running start so that you can get a good crop in. It, what, what we find is very often that the squash vine borer comes in just about at the same time that the powdery mildew does, or at least that's what, the way it used to be. Squash vine borers have been coming earlier and earlier um, than they used to. But so, what else do you do? Without, do you are you completely successful with the resistant cultivars in your area? And do you have um, one that I- you'd recommend? Well, there's there's one uh, zucchini is what I'm thinking of is um, I think the name is Romulus, uh, but look for the the letters the capital letters P M after the name. You know, when you're looking in the seed catalog, um, uh, there's uh, always a whole bunch of letters after the cultivar name, like um, V or F one or uh, TMV, those refer to the, the the things that that plant is genetically resistant to. Uh, TMV would be tobacco mosaic virus. V is verticillium wilt. Uh, F is 
F1 is Fusarium Race 1. So those letters are are important part of the consideration when you're thinking about what vegetable am I going to grow this year. Um, They're good things to look for. And so the letters PM refer to resistance to powdery mildew. Um, So that's that's a good thing to look for. Now, you mentioned they're genetically not susceptible uh, or genetic that they're genetically resistant. I know some of our listeners are probably going, genetically, that, that means it's a frankenfood. But this is, just, this is just hybridization. They're not taking fish genes and putting them into your cucumber and squash plants. Absolutely right. These are not uh, uh, genetically modified organisms or, or GMOs. Um, those GMOs are, are created in the laboratory by taking, snipping genes out of the chromosomes of completely different organisms, like a bacterium or a shark or a spider, and inserting those genes into the chromosomes of something else, like like your corn plant. They have done that with corn. Uh, they've taken the, the genes that make the, um, the, the, the insecticide that kills, you know, Bacillus thuringiensis is a bacterium, a Bt, that kills caterpillars, the larvae of butterflies and moths. And so you can spray Bt on your apple trees and it will help to control codling moths. Um, but if you take the genes that make that toxin out of the bacteria and put it into your corn plants, now you have a frankenfood, basically, um, and that has been done. There are GMO soybeans also. So there's things that we have to be careful of, but, but uh, we advise home gardeners to, you know, avoid GMO plants wherever possible. And most of the, the things we've just been talking about uh, vegetables that are resistant to various diseases and pests are non-GMO plants. They're just they're created by ordinary uh, sexual reproduction by plant breeders working in the classical, old-fashioned way of, of transferring pollen from one plant to another. Um, so they're not frankenfoods. Now, now that we've put everybody's um mind at ease on those. Uh, it's my understanding that there are no genetically modified cultivars available for the home gardener. But as you mentioned, corn and soybeans, it's very hard to get get them and that aren't genetically modified, um, either for resistance to the caterpillars and rootworms or uh, to withstand Roundup applications. And I understand also that there are uh, some cultivars of squash, zucchini and yellow squash out there that are in the commercial market that are genetically modified. So from my standpoint, that's a good reason to grow my own. Yes, I, I think that's, that's very, very wise. And, and, and uh, it's my understanding, too, that the GMO crops, are, are not being sold to home gardeners, and that's and that's a good thing because you know we we don't we don't want that. Uh, it's also true that you know a lot of people like to save seed uh, and grow their own open pollinated or heirloom varieties 
um, every year, and and that's a good thing to do too. Uh, but things, let's say for example, corn. Corn is wind pollinated, and so if you're if you if the wind is blowing genetically modified corn pollen from a farmer's fields onto your plants and you're trying to save your seeds, then your seeds will be contaminated. That is unfortunately true. I had a conversation with a gentleman who produces um, organic products for the farm industry and for homeowners, and one of his products is a corn gluten meal, and I asked him whether that was organic, and he said no. He won't claim it organic because he can't. He doesn't know where that pollen has come from. That's right. Yeah. So it, it makes it it makes it very difficult for uh, uh, for home gardeners with wind pollinated things. See, soybeans are not wind pollinated, so it's a little uh, easier to control. But well, course, any anybody that's tried to grow um, even a super sweet variety of corn and a regular variety of corn, you know, the regular starchy ones, know how wind pollination can change it. Even and and you're getting instead of your super sweet corn, if you've got regular corn planted next to it, and the wind is blowing in that direction, um, you'll end up with your super sweet having a fair number of kernels of just plain old starchy corn. Absolutely true. <laughs> Yeah, that's very disappointing. We're lucky enough here in the South that if I want to grow two types, like if I want to grow popcorn and I want to grow a super sweet corn, I can separate it by time, even though I don't have room to separate it by distance. I'll plant one crop so it will mature and sooner than the other. And then when the second crop comes in, I don't have to worry that there's going to be pollen from the first one still hanging around. Well, that's wonderful because you have such a long, uh, hot growing season. We, we here in the uh, uh, Northwest, we also have a really long growing season. I mean, it's 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 I mean, it's huge, but it's cool. And uh, in fact, it's very very difficult for us to grow things like sweet corn or tomatoes. It's just so cool here. It doesn't get warm enough in the summer. My brother lives not too far from you um, during the summer, and they have a the people that owned the house before they purchased it had a big board fence all around it. And what he did for his tomato crop, they have a, quite a large garden, but particularly for his tomatoes, he made a little plastic, well, he made it out of carpet runners and some old two-by-fours that he had hanging around and made a little greenhouse that is up against the fence, so he can grow his his sun gold tomatoes and things like that with no problem. Yes, because he's he's trapping the extra heat that they that they need. We we do get uh, uh, at least here if you if you look for those tomato uh, varieties that are early, really really early, uh, you can you can actually mature a tomato crop. We've had really good luck with the little um, coralic cherry tomato, uh, it, uh, it tastes good, unlike a lot of the really super early tomatoes. Um, Corlick actually tastes good, and it does really well here for us. 
But the, 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 you guys are so lucky on the East Coast with your high humidity and high heat in the summertime. You can grow those wonderful beefsteaks and the old heirloom tomatoes that taste so good that we here in the West have, have to struggle with. We can indeed, except in a rainy year. We've had late blight for the last couple of years because it's been cool and wet. And, of course, we get all sorts of other diseases like early blight, for which there is um, pretty much no resistance. So it's, you know, we all have our trials to bear. Yeah, we do. And we we also, uh, aside from our cool weather, we have uh, late blight uh, had a couple in the past, Three years um, late blight. I lost my, my entire crop of Santiam tomato to late blight, and that's one that you know it it, it develops so quickly, it's so fast that it's really hard to sanitize and spray and stay ahead of it. Once it's once it gets rolling, if the weather's cool and wet, uh, it just you know it eats your plants alive. Yep. Just a couple of days of rainy weather at the wrong time, and your plant just melts and turns into a soggy, smelly, horrible mess. Have you tried the new tomato, uh, late blight resistant tomato called Defender? I haven't tried that yet. That would be a good one. I have, yeah, I haven't tried that one either, but I think I'm going to. I grow primarily heirlooms, but you know, I always am looking for an insurance plant. A plant that's going to produce, even though it maybe doesn't taste as good as some that I like, but at least I can turn it into tomato sauce or something, and and salvage something out of the summertime. Is, yes, that's. <laughs> I, I like to do that too. We we we're always searching for tomatoes that we can uh, where we get a reliable crop out in in our climate. So, so Defender, that's a good one to look for. Yeah, and Randy Gardner up at North Carolina State has been working on some in their mountain cropping area because that's a, a very cool and damp part of North Carolina. And he's got some, most of them have the word mountain in the name, so that's something that you might look for. Well, we all are almost out of time for today, but I'd like to remind people that your books are called What's Wrong With My Fruit Garden, What's Wrong With My Vegetable Garden, and the two others, you've got one it's uh, what's wrong with my house plant, and what's and the what, first one that you did? What's wrong with my plant? Ah, okay. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, for those of you that are on Facebook, I will put all this information up on the Facebook page. And for those that don't, you can email me in care of the station, America's Web Radio, or at my website, which is mrsgreenthumb.com. Thank you for being with us, David. It's been fun. Thank you. Yes, it has been great. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.